For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million cows. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of that Tathagata's truth. So welcome, Dragon community. Abiding here on the ground. So our troops are everywhere in Chicago at Ebenezer and riding the cloud in Zoom. Together, manifesting one practice body. The Sangha Jewel. So it's really wonderful to sit together with everyone. This wonderful practice of just sitting of shikantaza that doesn't begin with, nor does it end with the sound of the bell. extending beyond the cushion into our lives. And I've been thinking about meditating on, coursing in, feeling supported by our practice of shikantaza together and wondering about how it manifests in our lives. And I just keep coming back to compassion, that the way our zazen, our zen practice works, is seen in human life, in our activity, uh, as compassion. And that's a creative response. You know, The more we sit, I think, the more tender we feel and naturally want to care for the world. Unfortunately, the world is always giving us opportunities for such caring. (laughs) Eve laughs over here. So this response of responding to the world without an agenda So without trying to say, oh, I'll be helpful, but let me get rid of that suffering because I can't stand it. We learn how to respond without some kind of controlling agenda from an open heart and creatively. So that could be a laugh in our zendo. Thank you, Eve. Um, It is a laugh in our zendo. It is the sound of the wind. Here we have a nice breeze 
the breeze of reality here at Ebenezer, and I hope you have such a wonderful breeze where you're at in our Zoom world. I don't know what a virtual breeze feels like, but sometimes maybe we can sense that. Um, so this is our beginner's mind that our great ancestor Suzuki Roshi encourages us in, which is boundless compassion and active in our everyday life, our relationships with each other, with plants, with our animal friends, with people we like and don't like. So last week, or last month actually, <laughs> feels like a week to me, last month I offered uh, up this case 54 from the Book of Serenity, translated by Thomas Cleary, these old teaching stories which can seem kind of weird and inaccessible at times. So I like, I'm just going to enliven this story again, if, if you can hang in there with me. And case 54 is entitled uh, Union's Great Compassion. So just to set up context, uh, maybe David Ray, you could share this uh, picture of the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion. Avalokiteshvara. And if, so this is what this case is referring to in terms of the discussion between a couple of Dharma friends. A couple of Dharma friends who lived a long time ago in China, probably in the mountains someplace. And they were walking around and saw this image, I guess. So this formed the basis for this story. And I'll just say a little bit about this image. So this is uh, Avalokiteshvara, the great bodhisattva of great compassion who regards the sounds of the world. So sees the sounds, uh, responds to the suffering of the world. And all those, uh, all those arms you see, I don't know if you can see those, I think maybe um, David Ray has a, a close-up. Uh, the next slide, I think, that kind of gives a close-up of these arms. So in each arm, there is a an eye, a hand and an eye, that sees the world and responds to it. So this is what is being referred to. Uh, the other thing I'll say about these hands is there are multiple rows. I think there's five rows of empty hands. None of David, if you can point that out for folks. But um, there are some hands that are already full of uh, emergency help devices, emergency assistance devices. But there are a bunch of empty hands, and th these hands are our hands. You know, this is encouraging us in the many different ways that we open 
and can help the world that are not yet defined. You know, like um, our work leader today might hand someone a broom or uh, a little sweeper or a rag to dust off cushions. So that's already filling up some hands. And, you know, our techno today, David Ray, is uh, brought along a laptop. So you could see like a laptop in those hands, like if we were going to create this today. Um, many, many possibilities. Some people have books. Maybe Paul Disco has a piece of wood and some implement to work on. Tygen has his laptop. You know, you all have a variety of, of implements to respond to the world, uh, ready to deploy, let's say, as needed. So this is what was going on here. It amazes me when I look at these images and I think of China, let's say in the 800s, 900s, when these images were popularized, somebody had to make and create these and then transport them around or at least make them accessible to these Zen friends, Yunyan and Daowu. Pretty amazing, that kind of devotion. So here's the case, case 54. Someday I'll get around to it. Like these cases have an introduction that was written by someone who kind of compiled this, named Wan Song, and it has this case. So I'll read the introduction just to bring us all on the same page. Um, introduction is this, crystal clear on all sides, open and unobstructed in all directions, emanating light and making the earth tremble in all places, subtly exercising spiritual powers. Tell me, how does this happen? So this is our Shikantaza. I'm sure you all experienced this this morning in your sitting practice. Um, and then we got up and walked around. So we're manifesting this in our relationships in our life. And I love these stories because they're these old teaching stories like Case 54, they're relational. People are relating to each other, bringing the Dharma forth together. Sometimes, you know, they call some of these things Dharma combat, but our Dharma combat is peaceful and affirming. So this relational way of checking in with each other about how we're practicing and how we're bringing forth the Buddha activity in our lives. So Yunyan saw this image maybe walking around and asked Dawu, his Dharma brother, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? Dawu made this curious statement and said, it's like someone reaching back for a pillow at night. Maybe even searching with a 
hand and an eye at night for a connection, for comfort. And Union said to this very kind of strange statement, I understand. Dao, just to make sure, said, um, how do you understand? And Yunyan said, all over the body is hands and eyes. <laughs> and Dao said, well, you've got a lot there. You're pretty, that's a pretty good answer. Uh, but maybe you got only 80%. <laughs> and Yunyan just said, you know, how about you, elder brother? So, so he didn't kind of say like, don't just give me 80%. I deserve a better grade. You know, he, he said, well, help, help, help me understand how you see the world. Yeah. So there is no gap of 20% between us. That's my comment. And uh, Dawu said, throughout the body, pervading the body, is hands and eyes. So, so that's our story. Many of you have heard this story many times, so I really apologize for holding it up once again. Um, but it keeps teaching me, and I hope it keeps supporting all of us in our practice. I wanted to also mention, as an aside, or by the way, the person who translated this volume, Book of Serenity, as well as many other texts, is Thomas Cleary, also a teacher of our wonderful translator and scholar and teacher, Tygen. Uh, Thomas Cleary would have been 73 years old today, but he died last year but left us an incredible legacy in English so that we, at least English speakers, could begin to open these up and share in what I think of as the genetic code of our school, of our Zen practice, of our Buddhist practice. Um, so these stories, which can seem old and weird, are, are just part of our genetics, and we'll make up our own stories. You know, we're evolving our practice over time. But I just want to appreciate the work of Thomas Cleary. Some of you have been reading the Avatamsaka Sutra translation that he did. Um, there are many, many uh, somewhat more obscure people who he translated, Chinese, even Korean Zen people, that uh, I continue to learn from and am grateful for. So kind of like Dawu and Yunyan and whoever was the nameless artist who created this image of the thousand-armed great bodhisattva of compassion. All of these people are part of our practice body. So I just would like to acknowledge and appreciate that. Um, and um, when I was reading this and thinking about Thomas Cleary, my gratitude for him, I said, you know, 
I think I might go and uh, reread the preface. No, how many of you actually like read prefaces to like these ancient texts? Tygen does, <laughs> but you know, like sometimes you skip over them, or you're like, oh, you know, I don't know. This is a translator's introduction, but this introduction here in this book of Serenity by Thomas Cleary, written by Thomas Cleary, uh, has a lifetime of teachings in it. It's kind of amazing. And it's especially amazing after you read a whole bunch of the texts that are really uh, interesting that he refers to, like the Sandi Nirmatana Sutra. Um, but he gives a little background to the Book of Serenity, which I just want to bring forth, because it relates to, I think, our time and our world. So Cleary writes in this uh, introduction to the Book of Serenity, the original text of the Book of Serenity was lost due to disturbed conditions in northern China where Wang, Wang Thong worked. Successive invasions and occupations by foreign powers. So this was written in a time of war in a land far away. Uh, lost. And then the text was eventually reconstructed by Wansong himself at the request of one of his disciples. This disciple was a, sta uh, was a statesman, uh, a government official named Yelu Chusai, I think. <laughs> so Yelu was in the service of Genghis Khan. <laughs> think about that. Uh, wouldn't it be great if somebody who was in the service of, let's say, Vladimir Putin uh, was requesting such a text? Maybe they are. And it says, Yelu was credited with mitigation, was one of several people credited with the mitigation of harshness of the Mongol rule over Asia. So this book, this story, what we're going to open up a little bit more today, is a response from Wansong, from this teacher to a student during a violent time. And Yelu, also like, I think, us, <laughs> is, was wanting to work for the benefit of all beings, even during a time of war. I don't know, you know, war doesn't seem to have been a good experience anywhere. So any mitigation is welcome, in my opinion. Um, so it's kind of amazing, you know, that this, uh, oh, Cleary goes on and says, Yelu urgently requested the reconstruction of the Book of Serenity during his extended stay at Genghis Khan's headquarters in Mongolia to help him continue the Chan study while he was separated from his teacher. <laughs> amazing, in my opinion. I hope you share my amazement. Uh, so no electricity, no laptop, no Amazon, you know, 
uh, and somehow Wan Song wrote what we call the Book of Serenity or reconstructed it and I guess got it to his student who was serving Genghis Khan. So now back to uh, case 54. So this is a little bit of a, a prelude of these two to this case with these two Dharma brothers bringing forth the story of uh, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with all those hands and eyes? How do we help the world? So these wisdom eyes and helping hands of compassion is just a wonderful picture. Bodies ready to respond are, are just the manifestations of our shikantaza, of our just sitting in our everyday lives. Somehow we activate something that's beyond our, our knowledge. And in shikantaza, we relax our grip. We let go of our habits and settle and become open and aware, aware of causes of suffering internally our own greed, hate, and delusion, and study and experience how that manifests externally. We have a lot of help from the media if we have any problem seeing how suffering manifests externally. But this boundary becomes... becomes disappears. How's that? in our practice, in this boundless awareness. And this is just the simple, simple practice of reaching back for a pillow uh, when we're not caught in the small mind of dividing the world into us and them, dull or sharp, winners or losers. So, going a little bit beyond just the content of the case, in these teaching stories, also known as koans, uh, you know, they have kind of a form in the Book of Serenity. And one of the, the cases presented, but then Wansong comments on the case. You know, we're carrying that tradition forth a little later, and I'll welcome all of your comments on this case. But... At the end of a kind of a longish comment section that follows the case, Wan Song makes a comment that I was kind of surprised by, so I had, to, when I first read it, and I've still been contemplating this for years, um, so there's another story. So in all of these cases, there are stories within stories and within stories. I think of this again like this genetic code. These stories are part of like, you know, the amino acid chain and the double helix, except this is our net of Indra. Um, but here's this little comment, another little exchange, another little relational uh, piece here. A monk asked Zhao Fan, Zhao Fan was an ancient Chinese teacher, Buddhist teacher. Monk asked Zhao Fan, 
Are there differences in the instruction of the old adepts, the old attained practitioners? And Jalfon said, <laughs> this is his comment, the Buddha had an inarticulate dull monk repeat a broom-sweeping chant. And one day, the monk was greatly enlightened and attained great powers of intellect and eloquence. In this, you should see the ancient worthy's intention of helping people. It's just like thrown out there. So I thought I'd unpack the story of what that Jalfan is referring to, the Buddha and this inarticulate monk and sweeping the broom. By the way, of course, and I think many of you have heard this uh, famous teaching story also in the book of Serenity that Tigan's spoken about a lot, which is the one who is not busy, which also happens to be about Dawu and Yunyan <laughs> and a broom. And uh, so this may be also resonating, this, this little comment by Wanson resonating with that story as well. But it, it refers to this story that is told in many ways over uh, time. But it said, oh, you should study this story maybe, and you'll see the ancient practitioners' intention of helping people. So this is sort of like, let's study this story to find out a little bit about great compassion. So this is a, a lovely story, just like the thousand-armed Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara was familiar to Chinese people. It seems that this story is probably also familiar because it, uh, it comes up. So, and it turns out that this articulate dull monk is actually one of the 16 great arhats that's very popular in Asia, great one of original OG Buddhist disciples, you know, original gangster disciple, <laughs> is this uh, this Arhat, number sixteen of the sixteen, uh, known as Chula Pantaka, or let's just call call this one Little Roadway. So this is our darling little roadway. And here's a version of the story. It's told so differently, but similarly, in uh, early foundational Buddhism as well as in Asian stories. But Little Roadway had a kind of a humble beginning. It's kind of like a blues story. Little Roadway was born on the side of the road. <laughs> born on the side of the road with a mother who'd violated social conventions by marrying someone outside of the prescribed uh, marriage pool. So we never hear the story of the mother much further, but I think it's nice to remember that these old geezers, old men, had moms. And uh, this mom apparently married for love and had uh, marrying someone below her socioeconomic status <laughs> and gave birth on the side of the road to Little Roadway and also did the same with his older brother, Big Roadway. <laughs> but Big Roadway 
also born on the side of the road, joined Buddhist Sangha. And Big Roadway was really smart. You know, that kind of smarter, older sibling. Great memory. Very studious, probably like many of us, you know, probably got a PhD of his time. Uh, but Little Roadway didn't remember things very well. As a matter of fact, was thought of as, quote, a dullard. <laughs> and uh, while Big Roadway joined Buddhist Sangha and quickly rose up the ranks, you know, probably given Dharma talks after his first month there, uh, Little Roadway wanted to follow his older brother and gained entry into the Sangha but like had a difficult time. Like everybody was trying to teach him things like, remember this line, all things are impermanent. Therefore there is no self kind of a simple line. Most of us may know, uh, but some of you might forget, like forget the teachings. Be like, Oh, I'm not such a good Buddhist. Cause I can't remember like what Anapataka Dharmak Shanti means or something like that. You know, so maybe you can empathize with Little Roadway. But Little Roadway couldn't even remember a word. And the monks began to bully him, to shun him, exclude him. He was kind of barred, maybe, from the Zendo and from class because he couldn't remember anything. And he became really despondent and crying, almost suicidal. Some even say he was suicidal. Um, and Buddha apparently saw him crying and came to his side and said, well, I'll give you a teaching you can remember. Here's a broom. Take this broom. And when you're sweeping the temple grounds, which is a continual occupation for monks, uh, just say sweep dirt. So broom, took the broom, sweep dirt. And Little Roadway could remember that. Sometimes he'd just go sweep, sometimes dirt, but pretty much he became intimate with dirt. This just this is like reaching, <laughs> the hand reaching for a pillow. Would have just picked up a broom and offered it to Little Roadway. And Little Roadway, meditating on dirt, became intimate with the broom and with dust, actually took care of the grounds wholeheartedly. And Buddha didn't offer him the Eightfold Path to memorize or have him read Nagarjuna or recite the Heart Sutra. He gave him a broom, and Little Roadway didn't say, Hey, Buddha, give me a better teaching. I want something more just accepted it and uh, eventually little roadway attained realized non-dual awareness wholeheartedly devoted to sweeping and aided by the kindness and compassion of buddha uh, little roadway saw kind of the original goodness and the oneness of life beyond appearances of dirty and clean, better or worse, smart or stupid, 
So this sweeping is our pillow offering itself to the hand, you might say. Our little roadway uh, also went down in history, like I said. Original gangster disciple of the Buddha, still revered. We don't study too much in American Zen, but little roadway still revered here in our world, uh, in Asia, in China, in Japan by Buddhists. Um, so this kind of sweeping practice is uh, again part of our genetic code. Somehow you see a lot of monks with brooms. You see a lot of people around Zen areas with brooms taking care of things. Um, and I'll just share that when I read this, I was really heartened. <laughs> I had not known this story uh, for a long time about Little Roadway. But I did a long time ago receive this practice from my own teacher, who probably thought I was fairly dull who said, you know, your zazen seems fine, but why don't you make a practice of sweeping the sidewalk in front of your house and sweeping the sidewalk of your neighbors on either side every day after you sit. And I'll confess that I was like, what? I don't want that practice. Um, and I'm like, uh, my sidewalk's pretty clean most of the time. And my neighbors are going to think it's weird if I go do that. But we decided, you know, like I had a little schedule of doing this a few days a week, maybe four or five days a week, um, every, every week for a couple years. And it was great because I got to know my neighbors more. People come by and be like, well, what are you doing? Some people were like, um, why are you sweeping my sidewalk? <laughs> so this was a real opportunity to engage with people. And I felt um, my teacher was very much interested in helping me explore something called uh, not having a gaining idea in practice or in life, trying to get something from it. But how do you really offer something? And it's hard to find things that we offer that are sort of absurd sometimes. Because, you know, we're always like, maybe I can clean this better. You know, maybe I can be a better doan. Maybe I can be like, you know, get my robes just right as a Zen priest. You know, maybe I'll finally get somewhere. Maybe I'll really be helpful to somebody. And even in my voice when I say it, I can feel a little aggression, a little clinging activity. Um, so this reaching back for the pillow doesn't have that activity. It has a softness and an openness and a curiosity and a soft intention of wanting to help. So there's a wish, but it's, it's a wish that's free. It's a liberated wish. Um, so this broom of patience, of effort, and of awakening is maybe good instruction about how to meet the world's problems if we can really be helpful. Um, and we can never quite figure it out, but somehow we bring this forth together from our practice. And, you know, even in these times, 
I feel very deeply that we have countless practice friends to support us. You know, in Taigen, in Thomas Cleary, Yelu, Wansong, Little Roadway, Shakyamuni Buddha, they're all supporting us and we're supporting each other. And uh, this compassion body of a thousand hands and eyes of Avalokiteshvara is, is us, you know. It's here and now. It's not just stuck in China in 800 or 1100 or some other time period. Um, these old stories uh, are saturated, are pervaded, are covered by um, the intentions of countless humans some we know their names of, some we don't, like Little Roadway's mom, uh, crafted by hands and hearts of people just like us. And they were confronted like Yelu with war and challenges, with personal limitations like Darling Little Roadway, all sorts of problems problems in society, problems in relationships. And in just sitting across space and time, we form this compassion body together of hands and eyes from this intention to benefit the world that is arising in our shikantaza. Um, and even if we think our practice is shabby or we don't remember the names of all the ancestors or uh, can't pronounce these Chinese and Japanese and Sanskrit and who knows what else kind of names that don't roll off of our tongues. Uh, even so, we are continuing this line, this family style. This is known as the wind of the Buddhist house, and it's stirred when we sweep when we care for the earth, when we care for our lives, even when we don't care, actually, we're stirring it. We have a chance of realizing it uh, as we wholeheartedly kind of respond to this dusty realm. So uh, if your shikantaza feels a little shabby, don't get too worried about it. Because the vital activity of shikantaza is crystal clear, open, uninstructed bodhisattvas. So, enough, enough from me. Uh, let's chat together a little bit. I'd like to hear your dharma and your comments that are added on to this case or teaching or just plain how you're doing in your practice. So, thank you all very much listening. So, anybody would like to make a comment? I have a question. Yeah, Eve. Um, do I turn on? You can. Yeah, can I turn I, on unmute? I'll unmute. Okay. So I think Eve, come on over Eve. Say hello to everyone. <laughs> I was wondering, here. 
Oops. These masks, these demonic faces that are up on top, do you know anything about those? Yeah. Yeah. So could you repeat the question a little louder, please? The demonic faces that are up on top. The 11 heads yeah. of the Bodhisattva. Um, I can say something about it, but I'm no expert. There's a story, right? A story that um, Avalokiteshvara wanted to help beings release them from hell. And I don't know, made some kind of promise maybe that if I um, get frustrated, I'll explode and got frustrated and exploded multiple times. There's usually there's like, here's, there's 11 heads and they're not all demonic. And at the very top is Amida Buddha, the redhead on top. And Amida Buddha put Avalokiteshvara back together and imbued them with many hands and I guess they finally learned how to calmly relate to the difficulties in the world. So this is also an image of, uh, of failure and success, you might say, of failing, sometimes kind of losing your cool, losing your head, <laughs> but then also developing wisdom out of that until you actually could be settled enough to meet whatever's in front of you, no matter how horrible it is with some calm and actually have a chance of helping. So that's how I interpret it. Uh, probably other people might have other ideas about that, but uh, that's my understanding. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like us. Tygen. Uh, I can add a little bit to that. that uh, uh, oh, oh, somebody else is talking. Go ahead. Go on. No, I think that's you. That's you talking, Tygen. Oh, can you hear me now? I don't. To get a hold of Tygen. Yeah. Oh, hello. I muted uh, myself. Okay, I, I don't. I heard an echo. Anyway, uh, just to add a little bit oh. to that story, oh, another. That's okay. I yes, I need to. I need to bring sound back. Yep. Um, and if this is off, then then we won't have that correct. Right. right. So, yes. Mine is off. David Ray, is it? Are we okay now? Yeah, I believe we are. Let's try it. Okay. Uh, so I was just going to add uh, a little bit to uh, th uh, thank you to Hogetsu's. Um, uh, talking about that story and, and the 11 heads. Another version of the story is that uh, kind of uh, similar to what Hogetsu said, but that uh, Avalokiteshvara goes into hell and saves all the suffering beings. And then he looks back and sees that this, all the spaces in hell have been filled up again mm -hmm. and his head burst apart in grief. Mm -hmm. And that happened 10 times. And finally the 11th time, uh, Amida Buddha helped him keep it together, helped her keep it together. Uh, and um, I think Eve was asking about the demonic heads at the top, around the top ring of the 11. And partly that's that, um, 
of Valokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, uh, helps beings in whatever way they need. So some some of us need some strict, stern, wrathful teacher to get us in shape. So that's why there's demonic heads there. They're not demons. They're uh, Valokiteshvara helping beings who, for whom that's, that's needed. But I was going to add another historic footnote, if I may. And I, and Hogetsu, thank you so much for, I had no idea that today was Thomas Cleary's birthday. So thank you for that. And thank you for talking about him. But um, just a, a historical footnote to this, a little bit relevant to our times, is that um, so the, the cases in the Book of Serenity and the ver- main verse comments are from Hongzhu, who I uh, translated in cultivating the empty field a little bit of him, um, but one song is real is not wasn't is not so well known in Western Zen, but was very important, and he had some really amazing disciples. And Yelu Chusai, who you mentioned, was a an important um, I don't know minister in uh, or assistant in Monk, in Genghis Khan's uh, court in his in his army and. Um, and he was also a Zen student and wanted once a student of Wansung and asked Wansung to give talks again after the original talks were lost on these cases from Hongsha. And that's what came to, came to be the Book of Serenity. But his influence on the Mongols and Genghis Khan that Hogetsu referred to it was really important. Um, and it's a lesson to us as, you know, uh, how we can be helpful in times of hard, you know, war and, and really difficult times. Um, there's a book that I would recommend called Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford, who was a professor at some school in Minnesota. Anyway, um, the, the, uh, the Mongol Empire was vast. It went from Korea to Vienna and from Russia down to India, and um, sometimes it's considered ruthless, but actually, thanks to the Buddhist influence from uh, Yellow Chu side, uh, they, they would, when they invaded, they would get rid of all the, you know, the, the local leaders, but they were very, um, uh, they were good to the common people and incorporated the common people, and especially the artisans and scholars and religious leaders in those different cultures. So the Mongol empire, um, uh, which was active in, in, you know, was, which, which interfered with Song Song China uh, and in Dogen's time uh, actually was uh, kind of an enlightened empire. If there is such a thing, they founded the first post office because they had mail that went from Korea to Vienna and, you know, all covered the whole area. They um, they didn't have an, the Mongols in Northern Asia didn't have a, a strong culture themselves, so they adapted the cultures of all the different places they conquered, including Buddhist culture. So uh, the Mongols were uh, really helped spread Buddhism amongst other things. So anyway, just to, as a historic footnote, um, this guy Yellow Chusai, Wansung's disciple, had this huge impact on world history. Um, so anyway, um, just thought I'd share that. And uh, we don't know how our practice and actions can affect things, even in times of wars. 
So anyway, thank you very much, Hogetsu, for your talk. Thank you, Tygen, for that pithy footnote. Um, this Avalokiteshvara, you know, man is a shapeshifter. <laughs> you know, Eve. And so thank you for bringing that up, Tygen, that, you know, this is, this is how our Shikantaza works, where it is activated and embodied, not in ways that we're expecting or even know, but what is appropriate to circumstance. And this is a deep thing to, to enjoy in our lives. So, mm -hmm, Kathy, um, do you want to... Following up on that, I was just thinking it makes me think about, you know, we tend to stay there's Kathy. Okay. Stay with people that we agree with, that we have that we think alike, that we think the same as. And so this is kind of a message of that's well, not always a good idea, you know, that sometimes to connect with um, people that you think are doing harm. Uh, and sharing your way is important, is useful. I mean, maybe those are isolated souls that have been, who knows what their histories are that create that. Uh, anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kathy, so, so I hope everyone heard that, but Kathy pointing out that this isn't just like, this is, I mean, yellow working, in this circumstance with in a violent time to do good you know so we don't abandon a situation because it's not convenient and there's a sense of inclusivity too like this story of you know uh monks can be mean Buddhist practitioners can think well somebody's different so they're not part of our group but you know I don't know if you've, if you've ever done your Ancestry.com or any of your genetic ancestors, but you'll start to see that we're all related. I mean, sometimes when they ask those questions, you know, on your ethnicity, I put down Mongolian if you go back far enough. <laughs> and I haven't had my DNA done, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, given some things that, yeah. So Eve, Eve is, is going to be a resident Mongolian. But, you know, there's, there's this sense that, our Buddhist genetic code encompasses everyone, including Little Roadway and Jelu and everyone else. And this warning, I think, of how do we not exclude people and develop this uh, capacity that Yunyan and Dawu were uncovering when they're exploring the Bodhisattva of compassion. And this works in our lives. And uh, so we have this great support genetically as well in our Buddhist practice, in our family style for this inclusivity. And, you know, Kathy, I really thank you for pointing out, you know, it's a real important part of practice of actually how do we stay with situations that are really uncomfortable or people that seem very, very, very different from us, you know, because this can be like, you know, we've all read the same books and we're the Buddhist club in uh, our style. And while all of that is really wonderful, um, 
our hands and eyes are really how we touch each other and meet the world. Someone else have an offering this morning. I see uh, Bryant with a golden hand and <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could say I had the uh, 18-foot golden Buddha body to go with the hand. Um, great talk, great topic, um, and little roadway with just his focus on just sweeping uh, reminded me of a quote somewhere from Shunyu Suzuki who said that strictly speak, and this this feeds into the hands and eyes thing. Um, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There is only enlightened activity. And, you know, there's, I think, a lot of people that come to Zen thinking that it's some kind of special thing that's apart from life. And, you know, be, maybe because of the monastery tradition or maybe because of who knows what. But, um you know, I think at the beginning, many years ago, I thought the same thing, that it was going to be a special kind of club that had a special magic where I could, you know, um, live a life that would be somehow more wonderful than my everyday life. Um, you know, and then you go through the teachings and then you go through sitting and then you go through just your own learning over time. And um I think you come to the point where, uh, like Buddha originally said, you know, the teachings are a raft. And once you've gotten to the other shore, you don't keep carrying the raft. And so in my mind, that means that in any situation, uh, just do what's appropriate to the situation. And you don't even have to quote Buddhism or you don't have to, um, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so just the sweeping. Uh, is enlightened activity, and and by doing that, uh, he was non-dual with the world uh, in a way. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Bryant. You know, in some realms, you may have that uh, ten thousand foot Buddha body to go with the golden <laughs> hand. Uh, this reminds me, actually, of the quote that I found when I was by Suzuki Roshi, which says, when we have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, we are true beginners. Then we can really learn something. The beginner's mind is the mind of compassion. When our mind is compassionate, it is boundless. When we are always true to ourselves in sympathy with all beings, we can actually practice. This is what I think you're referring to by the activity uh, that is practice. This is actually a, a card that has Samantra Bhadra on it, the Bodhisattva of Great Activity. There's on the elephant. There's the elephant. So cute. There's Samantra Bhadra also cute. Okay. So so thank you, Brian, for offering this. And so in our Sazan we we see how we have some ideas about things and what's want to get something out of practice. And that's okay. I don't think Avalokiteshvara is bothered by that at all. 
Maybe they just hand us a broom <laughs> or a rag <laughs> or a computer uh, or a bell. How's it going? Oh, I think Deborah's hand is up. Ah, oh, Deborah, welcome. Deborah, you're muted. Yeah, you'll unmute yourself. Thank you very much. I just wanted to thank you so much for your talk. When I, tears came to my eyes as you were speaking, is this sense of Abelo Kitishvara with these open hands, and that we also can have an open hand. I often, I've been working with a lot of not knowing for couple, many years, and um, I just found your talk just, it just went right through my heart, and um, I just wanted to thank you for your great insight and sharing these words from the Khan in this book of serenity. I just really support your honesty and also, you know, touching on the idea of no gaining mind. It's very difficult, especially, you know, one of my areas of not knowing is how to, how do we respond to what is going on in our world? Um, Any issue. I mean, many of us are aware of the numerous painful issues in our world. And I just felt a type of resting with your talk today. And I just want to deeply thank you for that. So thank you. Thank you for connecting our hearts. So that resting is that hand. You know, it's search that hand is is kind of searching in the dark, both to give and receive comfort. And you know, we're all working on this. And we're all searching in the dark because we can't know. But somehow in our zazen, we settle, we go more deeply, deep, until we we find this (laughs) limitless light of Buddha that helps illuminate in an instant maybe what might be helpful, but we don't have a thought of it. You know, we're warned all the time that we can't figure all this out. There's Ruben. Hi. (laughs) Um... So that, that living and not knowing is, is, is a wonderful practice, but it doesn't mean you just sit there and don't do anything. You know, like we can be traumatized by the pain of the world, and we have to move beyond that and unfreeze and open. And that's, that's a tender thing. And this is why we gather as Sangha, because we need each other to, to live in this world and help each other. So... Thank you for helping us all, Deborah. I also want to thank David Ray very much for helping with this technology and uh, helping in so many other ways, but it's really wonderful that we have this opportunity to reach across space and time to be together. So, um, thank you. (laughs) Anything else, Bodhisattvas? I think we have, um, maybe we could just chant the four vows and then have announcements and then we'll have service, and then a work period, 
in the, the physical temple. So may our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to freedom. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to freedom. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to be a blessing.